Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God, and I sent out a notice to the network which everybody should be a part of. And the notices can go out because it's a series of groups. The notices can go out in a few minutes. While our kingdom news list, if we were to send out a notice on that, it takes four or five hours to get all the messages out because you have to meter it. And there's a whole process in in getting those messages out because of spam protection. But the network is pretty instantaneous. It gets the information out right away. And uh, it also connects you geographically to people in your area. The number of people that have contacted us over the last few weeks and, and, and months and even years that have always wanted help or needed assistance or finance, uh, finances or they were stranded or uh, what have you is, uh, is I, I suppose it should be kind of surprising, but it really isn't that surprising. I've been at this for many years. But what is uh, difficult to understand is that many of these people have been a part of the network for a long period of time. We have people that, or they've known about the network for a long period of time, and they have done nothing to gather together in congregations with other people. Uh, little to nothing. Uh, they they resist that idea of gathering together with other people. And there's a number of reasons why. And there's most of the reasons that they have in their mind why are invalid. <laughs> but but uh, that would be attacking their delusion. And, and you're never supposed to attack their delusion. The reality is, is the Bible tells you do not forsake the gathering together. It's about people gathering together from the days of uh, Abraham when he left uh, Ur with many souls. Most people don't realize it that, you know, Abraham had come and gone from Ur a number of times and finally he went there and then he left Ur, uh, actually Haran, uh, the last time, with many souls. And they had left Ur and gone and created the city of Haran with his father and uh, brothers and um, they had done that because of the injustices that were taking place in Ur. And uh, we've talked about that. But the reality was a lot of people went with Abraham. And knowing what Abraham was doing uh, would shatter a great many people's delusions. The same is true of Israel. They didn't... Uh, I always remember somebody told me that he was freeing uh, Americans one day at, at one individual at a time. He he was going out and, and telling everybody how you do this and that and the other thing to be free from the modern system of what a lot of people feel as a bondage. That there's no precedent for that in the Bible where God is freeing people one person at a time. He almost always does it in groups. Although in those groups, the nature of those groups is based a great deal on individual responsibility. 
individuals walking a walk, following a way, because even in the Old Testament, the, the way of God was a way. And uh, in the New Testament, that's what Christianity was called, was a way, a way to live, a way to think, a way to interact with one another, based on individual choices together. Not a democracy, but a daily individual choices being made by individuals in their relationship and their walk with everybody else and therefore with the governments of the world. Abraham was this Hebrew, Hebrew kind of meaning wanderer. He was walking a different way than the people in Haran and the people in Ur. And yet, and certainly the people in Sodom and Gomorrah, yet when those countries were overwhelmed, those city-states were overwhelmed, by an invading army, it was Abraham and his individuals who, and the people who had also set up these, whatever they were, altars, that came to the aid of those people captured and set them free. They didn't set themselves free, somebody else set them free, but the people that set them free were doing something different than what they were doing in city-states like Haran, Sodom, Gomorrah. And we we think of Sodom and Gomorrah as the corruption there was that they were gay, uh, homosexual, sodomy, and uh, violent in the streets, uh, disrespecting other people's rights. And all that's true, but that was not the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. According to the Bible, the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was in a time of affluence, they did not strengthen the poor. That's what it says. And when you don't strengthen the poor, they become weak as individuals. They do all kinds of things they're not supposed to be doing. And that leads to homosexuality and sodomy (laughs) and violence in the streets and people not respecting other people and their property and their homes, etc., etc. And we see a lot of that today. I was just listening this morning to uh, uh, Jordan Peterson, who is a psychologist and very outspoken guy, and uh, and you know he he's fun to listen to, you know, like because he he tells it like it is, and he says you you need to go out and speak your truth, what you believe to be truth, as articulately as you possibly can. You need to speak it in the world with other people. And if you're wrong, they will tell you that you're an idiot and they'll tell you why and then you will become stronger for it because you are being challenged by other people. Although most of the people nowadays, if you go out and speak the truth, they just want to shut you up. They don't want to argue against it. They come at you with ad hominems or they come at you with sticks and they just want to shut you up. And uh, what's happening is in, a, in our time of affluence, which would probably one of the most affluential times in the history, uh, at least for the last century, was in the 50s and 60s. After World War II, there was kind of a boom 
of success and, you know, you have your happy days and everybody is doing great and there's prosperity and people are building little houses made of ticky-tacky all lined up in a row, if you remember the, the song. And in that time of affluence, we did not strengthen the poor. We created a war on poverty. And we created this war with government power where you began to take away from one class of citizens to simply provide with very little discretion another class of citizen welfare. And uh, that, that war on poverty altered the course of history, altered the course of society. And it, it, it destroyed, I mean, it's, it did more to destroy the black community than slavery. Yeah, did you know that you were more likely to be, if you were a black child born in slavery, you were likely to, more likely to be raised by both parents than you are today. <laughs> That's amazing. Raised up by both parents with full medical coverage, <laughs> but a job, a guaranteed job and in, in the workplace. And we always have this idea that, you know, slavery, everybody was being beat all the time and, uh, and, uh, abused all the time and that's just not the case most slaves lived in the house of their master you didn't know that you always think of slave quarters and people living in abject poverty and all this kind of stuff most slaves lived in the house with their owners with their masters ate often at the same table as their masters shared the life of their masters. It was, you know, large plantations where you would find this tremendous power over the lives of other people and abuses. Most Americans didn't own slaves. Most Americans really didn't benefit that much from slavery at all. Uh, there, there were commodities that were available uh, because of the use of slavery in the South and these larger plantations that came about cheaper, at least more competitively because of slavery. And and slavery, and it's amazing that, you know, when John Brown was trying to free slaves, some slaves would not go. They did not want to leave the plantation. They wanted to stay there on the plantation and work for their masters, even fought to protect their masters because their masters had often went to great lengths to protect them. Maybe as property, I mean, the same as you would, you know, take care of your horse or something else. And maybe it wasn't all that benevolent. But the reality is, is that slavery, it's a complicated thing. And I don't advocate it. Some people prefer slavery. And, of course, we have slavery today, but we don't call it slavery. It is a form of slavery because it's servitude and you cannot get out of it. And this has come about before in the past. And people tried to get out of it. I mean, like the bondage in Egypt. That is not really, by some categories of the term, slavery was not slavery. It was a Corvée system of statutory bondage. 
In other words, the people owed 20% of their labor every year to the government of Pharaoh. 20% of their yearly workload was done for the Pharaoh with no pay. That was the bondage of Egypt. It wasn't every, you know, you weren't, uh, you know, the movie makes it look like you are a slave every day of the year, 365 days out of the year, and you're just beat by men with whips and, and forced to work in mud pits and drag heavy stones. That's not what the bondage of Egypt was. It was 20% of your labor was done whatever the produce of your labor, the fruits of your labor was done and delivered to the Pharaoh in one way or another. You could actually go and work on government projects or you could, if you were wealthy enough, you could send somebody else to go work on government projects for you. You could pay them to go. Slavery, as we think of slavery where you own the person and you, they have to work for you day in, day out and for minor remuneration and room and board. That didn't really exist in Egypt because they had this Corby system of statutory bondage. And, and where you owed this 20% of your labor, which would be called tribute. Because you could actually pay a sum of money and you wouldn't even have to go work. But if you didn't have the money, you had to go work 20% of the year for the Pharaoh. That was the bondage of Egypt. That exists today in the world. In every single country that I know of, there is an income tax of some sort. An income tax is where you work 10, 20% of your work day, 30% of your work day, 50% of your work day. My father was in a 50% tax bracket so until noon he worked for the government he didn't get to take home any of the money that he earned until noon afternoon he he worked for himself that what he earned he got to keep that's a core v system of statutory bondage and you're in the bondage of egypt you're 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 literally uh, in in that exact bondage that we were told never to return to. And that's where we are today. I mean, there was no income tax on your labor in 1910. Or what is this? 1917. You know, 100 years ago, there was no income tax on your labor. There is today... It was not simply imposed by the government because how could they enslave a whole nation simply by passing a law that suddenly you have to pay 10, 20, 30, 40, 50% of your labor to the government. I mean, they can tax certain things, tax on uses, excise tax, what you call excise tax. How did they get the use of your labor? They had to offer you something and they did. Or they offered your parents something and your parents signed up. And they offered it to your parents at a time when they were already bankrupt. Which was back in 1933. Now there was income tax before 33. But you had to make a fortune before you were, you know, you, 
You could buy a home furnished in the 40s for for $3,000. You could buy a furnished house with dishes in the cupboard, oak cabinets, maple floors for $3,500. My folks bought one during World War II when my, my, my dad left uh, the service after injured in, in Italy. And they bought this home for $3,500. And uh, that's amazing. So how much would you had to have made, say, in um, 1920 in order to pay income tax? You'd have to make over $10,000 before you owed any income tax. Well, in 1920, you could buy three, four homes for that. So what's a home today? You know, $200,000 for a house today. That would mean you would have to make, you know, uh, $600,000 today before you'd owe any income tax by what was going on in the 20s. Three hundred thousand, four hundred thousand. Uh, no, excuse me, six hundred thousand to maybe a million dollars before you owed any tax, income tax. And usually, you were only fiduciaries to corporations because I mean, originally the income tax was called the corporate excise tax, and it had to do with corporations. But you know, a bank president or a head of a company that is a corporation, his his salary. You know, they always, you always hear about. If 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 the CEO can make you know a million dollars a year, then they can afford to pay their help fifteen dollars an hour, kind of thing. Well, the CEO is making that money because it's a corporation. He is enjoying the profits of that corporation. It isn't that his labor is actually worth that much, but he is enjoying the profits of that corporation. And a corporation has no inalienable right. To his labor. He's not getting paid for his labor. He's getting paid for his position in a corporation. Therefore, he's a fiduciary of that corporation. Therefore, what he is getting is taxable. Even without the introduction of, of other relationships. I mean, his, his relationship with the taxing authorities was created by his taking a position with a corporation. If he went and worked somewhere by the hour in the 1920s, he didn't get charged any income tax, but also he didn't make $600,000 a year. (laughs) So that's where income tax first came in. But for the average wager, his income tax didn't really begin until 1933. And, And with the addition of a a little blank on his income tax form for a social security number because he was offered a benefit social security he was offered security socially if he got that number you know I actually know somebody who uh, I think it was the day before his 18th birthday his parents were in an automobile accident and uh, and they were both killed and because he was a dependent, he was on Social Security right away. Well, he was also a quadriplegic. I mean, he really, he, he could use his arms, but not very well. 
uh, he he was literally for a great deal of the time just totally lived on a stretcher on a on a wheeled around bed and had to be taken care of. But he worked. He he did a lot of work. He was very smart. His father owned a machine shop, and he ended up hiring other people to fabricate things, and he showed them how to do it and told them how to do it. But uh, he was very bright. But uh, unfortunately for him, somebody got designs on his property who had connections with the mafia <laughs> and uh, who also had connections with government. And they eventually just inundated him with inspectors and all kinds of hassles and... Uh, it, it just ended up being a nightmare, and he ended up losing everything. But uh, and nobody was going to come to his aid. But he had led the, led this kind of lone life. He was, you know, very independent, very bright, and very able to get by, and and tried to fight all this pretty much alone. We we helped him to some degree, but. He was so angry that if you didn't do everything his way, you know, he would just try to alienate you and uh, was, you know, angry all the time. And uh, especially when all this stuff started happening, it brought up all the other anger. And uh, he would do things that you would tell him that if you do this, you're just going to get into trouble. We were able to reverse the process a number of times. We tried to unite him with his living members of his family. But it was uh, difficult because everybody was so angry at each other because of their past. And it kind of their karma creeped up on them. And uh, the, there were very powerful people trying to get his property and eventually got it. But anyway, that's another whole story. But it's important to understand that you set yourself on a path when you decide to think a certain way. And I'm always saying forgiveness is the end of conflict. And there were so many conflicts in his life that you could not take him back from what he was doing. So, how is this going to help you? I mean, we said that bursting the bubble was kind of the theme of today's show. And somebody asked a question about, let's see, is Luke 13. They mention in, in, in Luke 13 a particular quote, which we'll, we'll read when we come back. But it's this, uh, quote, uh, where Jesus is asked about the Galileans and their blood being mixed with their sacrifice. And you can take this metaphor a long ways and we'll, We'll talk about your blood and your sacrifice when we come back to Keys of the Kingdom.
So I said I'd read this uh, Luke 13. Everybody's had a chance to look it up themselves. And of course there's different versions of that uh, particular uh, chapter of Luke. This one reads, There were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifice. And Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans, because they suffered such things? I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. And then he he goes on to say, Or those eighteen upon whom the tower of Siloam fell, and slew them, killed them, Think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. He spake also of this parable of a certain man that had a fig tree that he planted in a vineyard. And he came and, and sought fruit thereon and found none. Then said he unto the the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. By uh, why cumbereth it the the ground? In other words, it's it's producing nothing. I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna put up with. It. I'm gonna cut it down, and that's what he orders. He cuts it down. So all. You know, although there are no chapters in Luke, except what men have decided to divide up into chapters, it's clear that all these things that he was just saying are are put together. So now there there's a huge debate as far as, you know, these Galileans as to who's who and uh, what what's all about. Some Some think it's uh, Judas of Galilee, who uh, some 20 years before this particular time had taught that Jews should not pay the tribute to the Romans. And, and of whom he we learn from in Acts 5.37. If you go to Acts 5.37, you can see references to that. And he, he drew after him a multitude of followers who on his being slain were dispersed. About this time, uh, that party would be at its height. And, and notice that in this particular commentary, they're talking about this is a political party. And it's saying we should not pay tribute to Rome. Uh, and Pilate caused his detachment of them to be waylaid and put to death as they were offering their sacrifice at one of the festivals, but uh, that they would, you know, that the blood of their sacrifice would mingle with their sacrifice. Now, you go to Bible scholars like Grotius, Webster, Wilkinson, they all think that that actually is who they're talking about when they talk about the Galileans, this followers of Judas of Galilee. But uh, other scholars like DeWitt, Myers, and Alford, uh, and and actually many others, 
don't agree with that conclusion. So they're just guessing. But and, and it's fine to do a little bit of study on these things and try to figure it out. There is another situation where people, not necessarily from Galilee, but could have been partially from Galilee, uh, could have been a group. Remember again that this was referred to as a party, a political party. And there was another political event where they wanted to bring this uh, aqueduct. They wanted to install an aqueduct. We still have the stones from that aqueduct, some of them. And, and what they did is they had limestone, big square blocks of limestone, and they somebody carved them out so that they would fit together, you know, like plumbing pipes. And then they put all these uh, pipes together. You know, these they're they're only like two feet by two feet. But then they put them all together and it forms this pipeline aqueduct that can go right through the streets and all the way over into Jerusalem. So they go to this pool of uh, Solomon and they aqueduct the water into the middle, middle of the city. And this is, this is great for the city. You know, you got a hundred thousand or more people. Sometimes you got two or three hundred thousand or more people come and visit. They need good drinking water. They need water that's not going to be picking up contaminants. So this is good for the people. This is a good public project. If you're going to have that many people living in an area to pipe this water in and it benefits everybody. But the problem was that Pilate said that you should take money from the general welfare fund. From from what, you know, there's a lot of treasuries in in Jerusalem. All the money wasn't in a single treasury. There was a treasury that was called Corbin, or at least the word Corbin is sometimes translated treasury in the in the New Testament. And Corbin means sacrifice. And what it was is the money you paid in goes into this treasury, this sacrifice, this Corbin that you make, goes into this treasury, and that treasury is called Corbin. And in the early church, they had a a box for the poor to take care of the needy of society and you'd put money or funds into that and that box was called the Corbanos which is the Latin Corbanos meaning that that money was for the poor and the taking care of the widows and orphans which was what religion was all about taking care of the widows and orphans and needy of society this was this was central to all the meaning times in, you know, you know, when the, the Christians met, those that had shared with those didn't have enough. And they succored the widows and orphans through the ministers who were funded by this, these contributions, these sacrifices of the people to take care of those widows and orphans and anyone who were sick or in need by any means within the congregation, and even occasionally the strangers sojourning in their midst, people they didn't even know. And this is what they did at church. And we know this from, you know, Justin the Martyr, and we know this from what Paul says, because he's always talking about charity, and and we know this from the daily ministration to take care of the widows and orphans and needy of society, the the definition of pure religion. That's what was, you know, if you're going to define pure religion as the visiting or succoring of the widows and orphans and needy of your society, that is a central core theme. 
which now to tie some of all these things together, that this finish this little bit about Pilate and the aqueduct, he said, take the money out of the Corbin treasury. He didn't say, now I don't know, there, he may have taken some of the money out of some of the other treasuries, uh, like the royal treasury, because we know Jesus went into the royal treasury. See, that's the thing is, the priests went into the Corbin treasury. That was their job, to tend to that. But there was a royal treasury. And we see Jesus is actually in the royal treasury instructing the ministers. It just says treasury, but if you look at the word that they translate into treasury, it's not the Corban word. It's the word that means the royal treasury. So Jesus was the king. Only the king could be in there instructing the ministers of that treasury. And there Jesus is doing it. This is just basic common sense, but also if you have a little historical context and you can read Greek, you could figure this out. And there's lots of scholars who could figure this out. They don't want to talk about it. (laughs) They don't want you to know the truth that Jesus was the king instructing how to handle that treasury. So anyway, building this aqueduct, we know some of the funds were coming from the Corbin treasury because that's what the people were protesting. Because what they said, you're, because that Corbin treasury is their social security. Just like this quadriplegic who was on social security. He was made a quadriplegic the day before his 18th birthday when his parents were in a head-on collision and both killed. And so the government, through Social Security, was now taking care of him. But he was still hard-working, industrious individual. Just to finish this story, and then I'll backtrack a little bit. But what Pilate was doing was taking money from Social Security. He's pilfering the Social Security fund to put in an aqueduct, which was a good idea. They could have, they could bring more people to Jerusalem safely. People wouldn't be getting sick from bad water. Everybody would have good water to drink. And it would bring more people to Jerusalem, which was, you know, these festivals were like Christmas time for the local business owners. They'd be selling more hotcakes and, and unleavened bread and, and leeks and onions and everything. It would just be a boom to the economy to have these festivals. And if everybody came and had the festivals and there was good drinking water so nobody got sick, next year more people would come to the festival. You know, it'd be like Burning Man. (laughs) 50,000 people show up to the desert. And you have to have good drinking water. So it was a good, good idea, but people didn't like him taking money from the Social Security Fund. So they were going to protest and so they all showed up and they're protesting. I don't know if they had sticks and signs, you know, like we see today. But they were, you know, probably had a little chance, you know, don't rob our Social Security fund, you know, <laughs> kind of thing. But anyway, pilots sent down a bunch of guys dressed up like civilians, but they were actually soldiers. And they mingled in amongst the crowd. And then at a signal... He he gave a signal and they started beating the protesters and protesters started, you know, kind of open the fire hydrants and started chasing all the protesters off. And, and many of them were bloodied. 
And I guess some of them died. And so their blood was mingled with their sacrifice. Because they're, they're protesting the misuse of their sacrifice. Well, now you want to put this in historical context. You have to go back and find out that Herod had this great idea of making the Social Security fund, paying into the fund, mandatory. You couldn't just say everybody had to do this because that would just be putting everybody under tribute. So he said, "What you if you want the benefits of the temple, the Social Security religious benefits of the temple, the social welfare of the temple that takes care of the needy of society, you have to sign up. And then when you sign up, you have to pay in. And there will be guys coming around and checking how much you're producing and making you pay in. But Jesus said that Corbin would make the word of God to none effect. Because people would start to say, well, I paid in. The temple should take care of my parents. I mean, they have a right to Social Security payments from the temple. Because I pay into that all the time. So they should take care of my parents. They should take care of this paraplegic, their quadriplegic. Because that's why, that's why we pay in. So they don't do as much for their parents because they pay into this system. And they have to pay in because that's the deal. But Jesus says that kind of system makes the word of God to none effect. That's what Nimrod had. That's what they had in Ur. That's what they set up in Haran. Oh, they're always going to set it up so it's more fair and less corrupt. But the end result is the same. As Polybius says, it, it degenerates the people. Because we come accustomed to living at the expense of others. It's a covetous practice. Because you desire your neighbor to be forced to contribute to your welfare. So anyway, the point was is they had set up that system and Pilate took money out of that. What they think Pilate should have done to get the aqueduct built is start a separate fund. Either, you know, like tax somebody who comes into the city and then that goes to pay for the aqueduct. You know, you put uh, a toll on the center part of the city. If you want to bring in and trade or sales tax. Rome had sales tax. But it was always enforced in a market area. You couldn't enforce it everywhere because they didn't have the electronics for that. But if you came into the market area, there would be guys going around. And every time you had a sale, they would take a portion of what you made on that sale. You know, a clip on that sale. And then that money goes into a fund. And then that builds the aqueduct. And then you have fresh water there. And you can have a bigger marketplace. Because you have water coming in. And so, they think that's the way you should have done it. Or you could have gone out and said, we want to build this aqueduct, it's good for business, and go around and collect donations. And build it that way. I mean, there's lots of different ways to do it. But he took it from the Social Security Fund and they were protesting that. So, some people equate this reference to Galileans to that. Because it might have been a lot of Galileans. Because, see, when they're taking from that that Social Security Fund, they're taking it from the Social Security Fund for the whole nation 
But the aqueduct is benefiting Jerusalem. And they didn't think that was fair. So you wouldn't probably get protesters from Jerusalem protesting the use of those funds because they're going to get the aqueduct. But you're going to get protests from someone like in Galilee. So they may have been mostly Galileans. So there's a couple different theories there. But basically, what we need to understand is how this blood of your sacrifice is mingled with your own blood. And that's what you have today. That's really what you have today. Because whenever you sacrifice, when you pay your taxes, I mean, what are they, they got jokes where they, somebody's at the IRS office and, and uh, they have this little jar on the table and he says, we're rather proud of that. We got blood from a turnip or, you know. So, uh, the the fact is is that your sacrifice, your taxes, that's your blood. That represented your your life. You worked and sweated and your heart beat and blood pumped through your veins while you were earning that money. And if a portion of that goes to someone, to the government, and maybe rightfully so, that's your blood that's going to that. But it's not necessarily voluntary. It's compelled. But it's compelled because somebody volunteered somewhere before. Your parents or you or somebody. That's how this, you know, the reason you owe income tax on wages or salaries is because you have a social security number. And you can't just throw the number away because you're a surety for debt. And you've been in debt since the system began because the government was bankrupt when they started the system. And it was a way in which... To make you a collateral for the debt, your labor will now be collateral for the debt and they can borrow more money. And now they have borrowed more money and there's your collateral for a whole lot of debt. <laughs> so you can't get out of the system. So anyway, um, it really isn't important to know whether it was Judas of Galilee or what. The important thing is to understand that if you... And there's all kinds of quotes in the Bible. You know, be careful you do not bite one another lest you be devoured. In other words, you bite one another and somebody's going to eat you up. You don't eat meat with blood in it. In other words, you don't take, you, you don't take from your neighbor. You don't covet your neighbor's goods. See, people that like to refer to taxation as theft. No, it's not theft. Taxation is a result of the covetous practice of signing up for benefits at the expense of your neighbor. Eating and depending for your livelihood on the ex, at the expense of others. On the labor of others. Where you take away their right to choose whether they want to contribute to the aqueduct or not. You're just going to take it away. They weren't complaining that somebody was taxed, they, the tax should have been on Jerusalem alone. You shouldn't be taxing people in Galilee to put in an aqueduct in Jerusalem. Well, the fact is, is they should have, you know, they, they could have done all kinds of things to uh, put a toll on the water that came through. That uh, That certain businesses who contributed to building the aqueduct would get free water. And then they could sell the water to people who didn't, <laughs> that, uh, didn't contribute. And, uh, 
Or they could just offer water to get people to come into their business. You get a drink of water with every meal you order. <laughs> there are lots of different ways to do it. But they choose, chose to, to tap into this Corbin money, which was originally not to be compulsory. To be, it was to be the result of free will offerings. In the Old Testament, Corbin was a free will offering. But at the time of Herod, it was a compelled offering for those people who signed up for the benefits. And they were all back in the bondage of Egypt. And Jesus came to set them free. And the way to set them free is that the reason you get into this is because you don't care about your neighbor as much as you care about yourself. So you're willing to live at the expense of your neighbor, have benefits at the expense of your neighbor. And so you sign up thinking that, which is, you take it to another quote in the Bible, lurk privately for their blood. That would, Let's all have one purse. Let's all have one system of social security. And everybody has to pay in. And we hope that we benefit from it. So what it does is it detaches you from charity. You don't have to be charitable anymore. So this is actually tying together this whole thing where I talk about you're more likely, if a black person in slavery was more likely to be raised by both of his parents than a black person today. In the United States, you, 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 75% of the children born today in the black community are born out of wedlock, with not both parents going to be raising them. But under slavery, the statistic was way lower. After slavery, the statistic was like 1.5%. Even in, in the ghettos of Chicago, the the percentage was less than 3% of the children would be raised by one parent. So, today, 75%. So, what? it's not a product of slavery. It's a product of black privilege. <laughs> the blacks, and, and I'm not, it's not uniquely black because whites are on welfare and unemployment and all these other giveaway programs. Children born out of wedlock and raised out of wedlock amongst the white communities on the increase as well. And this is a product of, in a time of affluence, you're not strengthening the poor, you're weakening the poor with systems of social welfare not based upon charity and not based upon uh, a moral criteria. So, your sacrifice is going to be mingled with your own blood. That's what's going to happen. I mean, it's just inevitable. You've been taking a bite out of one another and you're now devoured. You lurk privately to have, to have the blood of your neighbor. You know, you, you created this scheme. This is lurking privately so that you would benefit from the blood of your neighbor. And, and trap your neighbor into having to contribute to your welfare. And you are captured in the very net of your own construction. You are brought into bondage by this desire. Now, that, which is what that Proverbs, I think is one, uh, is all about. I mean, right away, right out of the bat, they're telling you about this. Now, if you want to be free from that, you want to get out of the net, 
You have to reverse the process. You have to think another way. You have to repent. And this is what Jesus is saying. Unless you repent, you're going to go the same way. You're going to go the same way. Repenting is thinking a different way. You have to start caring about your neighbor as much as you care about yourself. And that is why you need to congregate. So that you can begin that process which will lead to freedom. We'll talk more about this when we come back to Keys to the Kingdom. Welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So, in the last show, we talked about the fact that if you, what this repentance is, you have to think a different way. That's what repentance, it's not about being sorry. You can be sorry too, but repentance is thinking a different way. Metanoia. To think a different way. And you have thought that it's okay to benefit to lurk privately for the blood of the innocent, to take away from those who you don't even know in order to be benefited, to have free education, to have somebody take care of your parents, to, to you know, get um, care for a quadriplegic, to do, to do any of these things. I mean, that's what all the, what do they say, uh, socialist is very fond of spending other people's money. <laughs> <laughs> you know, event, the problem with socialism is eventually you run out of other people's money and you don't even have that anymore. And, of course, that's what, you know, the the pilot wanted to do is take the Social Security money uh, in the treasury of the Corbin and pay for the aqueduct. And the people complained about that, or at least the people not immediately benefiting from that. Saying you're robbing that. But the fact is, is the people had already decided it's okay to take from my neighbor to have this social security fund. I can force my neighbor to contribute to my welfare. This is what they were doing in Ur. This is what they were doing in Haram. But this is not what Abraham was doing. This is not what Moses was doing. This is not what Jesus Christ was doing. As a matter of fact, Jesus Christ was preaching against that. And certainly Peter, certainly, you know, when he talks about covetous practices, cursing your children, making you merchandise, uh, making you a surety for debt, Old Testament, New Testament, all talk about this. They talk about a government that operates by the perfect law of liberty, by free will offerings, by charity, by love, in hope, that your bread will come back to you in time of need. But that's not what people are doing today. But they're calling themselves Christians. You keep using that word Christian. I do not think it means what you think it means. I think it means actually doing what Christ said. You're not doing what Christ said. 
The fruit of your labor has been the bondage of the whole world. The whole world is back in the bondage of Egypt. Every country. Children born in debt as surety for debt. You need to think differently. And that's the beauty of it. All you have to do is start thinking differently. And acting upon what you're thinking. Like Jordan Peterson says. You have to speak up and say your truth. And if it's not true, take the flack. And it will, you do that for years, he says, and it will make you stronger. There's consequences for speaking the truth. Jesus warns us of the consequences of speaking the truth. That they're going to hate you. Kill the messenger. But there's consequences for not speaking the truth. But you don't speak just with your mouth. You speak with your deeds. With your actions. Didn't actions speak louder than words? <laughs> did, you, did you ever hear that? It's true. You say, Lord, Lord. You do not do the will of the Father. The, the quadriplegic I was telling you about. Hard-working guy. He, he was so debilitated, he couldn't even stay in a wheelchair. He had to be on a stretcher, on a, on a wheel-around cart. So, and he had some use of his hands. They, they didn't have the strength or anything that your hands would have. But he could move them with great effort and, and do push a button. And so he had a wheel around bed that he could wheel around with a push of buttons and get underneath rings and he'd pull himself up and be able to look at things. But he had to move this bed around in his shop so he could go over here and tell this guy how to do that and go over here and tell that guy how to do this. And so he, and, and of course it's electric so it's plugged in so it's got this cord. Well, when this guy who wanted their property, who wanted his property, uh, which was his parents' property before him, uh, he just didn't sit idly by watching TV every day. You know, I know a guy who claimed to be disabled the first time I ever saw him. I, I could not figure out what his disability was. Oh, he has a bad back, but he does all kinds of stuff. You know, I mean, you know, fixes his own cars and stuff like that. And he was a fairly decent mechanic, but... He was living totally on government dole. His wife or living girlfriend, you know, they would both walk around with liters bottles of pop. You know, I guess two liters. One of those big, huge bottles of pop. And, of course, their teeth are all gone. And he would watch videos all the time, all the time, all the time. And uh, and eventually she left him. And... Uh, well, now he's taken to wearing a dress and he has a boyfriend. <laughs> I mean, and, and a beard, a dress and a beard. <laughs> Still on welfare all his life. You know, I think he was in Vietnam or something at one time. But, you know, he supposedly has this disability. He's still getting around just fine. But he just lead totally idle life. And now he's got... You know, he had screws loose before, but now he's just totally, totally a mess. Totally a mess. 
And that's where he's going to continue to go because he's not, he's not fruitful. He's not, he's, he's, you know, yeah, I, I quote Polybius all the time. I think I should read Polybius quote every show. <laughs> he says the masses continue with an appetite for benefits and the habit of receiving them by way of a rule of force and violence. I mean, all the money that he gets for his disability is collected by force and violence. It's legally collected. It's called taxation. Because everybody else signed up. They they all thought, well, it would be good to have this guaranteed social security. Uh, and yeah, at the expense of people I don't even know. But still... Yeah, they should pay for me. They they should take care of me if I have trouble. They should. But you should let them have that choice. Because you don't want to let them have that choice. You want to force them to contribute. You are going to go into bondage. That's it. That's it. That's it. Just because you're not going to set your neighbor free... You will not allow your neighbor to choose whether to help you or not. You're going to go into bondage. That's just the way it's going to be. There's nothing you can do about it. If you take away the right of others to choose, you will lose your choice. Write it down. (laughs) The people having grown accustomed to feed at the expense of others and to depend for their livelihood on the property of others... Institute the rule of violence, which is what you've done. And now, uniting their forces, massacre, banish, plunder, until they degenerate again into perfect savages and find, once more, a master and a monarch, which you get to elect a different one every four years. (laughs) That's what you've done. Hundreds of years before Christ was preaching people knew this you don't know it today if you repent and say let's not live by force okay two people ten people hundred people learn to not live by force and violence but by free will offerings now you're going to bump and grind with each other you know I, I know somebody whose child was born with a cleft lip well, you can look up cleft lips, uh, you know, where, where that comes from. It is common, or at least statistically, it happens amongst people who drink lots and lots of coffee. More than people who don't drink hardly any coffee. So there's a connection. Somehow or other, drinking something in the coffee will lead, you know, I mean, there's there's a lot of people who drink lots and lots of coffee and they they don't give birth to children with cleft lips. But the reality is somehow that's related. If you drink lots and lots of coffee, you have a greater likelihood of giving birth to a child with a cleft lip. I'm sure that it just raises this statistic slightly. But still, there is that increase. There's other... Other problems that birth defects that we have that are definitely connected with drinking alcohol, uh, taking drugs, um, uh, can also be, you know, it, it's been associated with diabetes. 
But then now, is it the diabetes that is causing it, or is it the drugs you take to deal with the diabetes? Uh, you know, statistically, you can't tell. But th- we live in a cause and effect universe. So there are things. So the point is, is that if you have problems, you can throw money at the problem, or you can take a look deeper into yourself and say, why do I have problems? I know people who chew tobacco. They think, well, it doesn't hurt anybody because there's no secondhand smoke with chewing tobacco. But every time they put that chew in their mouth in front of their children, they're telling their children it's okay to be addicted to a drug substance because, I mean, tobacco is a drug. I mean, it has a drug effect on you. That's why you're taking it. It's okay to be drug addicted. Every time you do that in front of your child, you're you're telling your child it's okay to be drug addicted if it makes you feel better. People actually tell me that, oh, well, I, I chew to help me cope. No, you chew so you don't have to cope. <laughs> it's like the alcoholic. I want to drink to help me cope with my problems. No, you you drink or take drugs or meth or whatever it is so that you don't have to deal with your problems. Unfortunately, it usually creates more problems. So, now, it's obvious in these extreme cases of, you know, somebody on meth and losing their teeth and completely spaced out and losing their job and their family and everything else. It's obvious to see this process with them because it's so extreme. But what about the things that are not quite so extreme, that are more accepted? What happens is that we we become a part of a tribe of addiction. We have a, a tribal addiction. I mean, you know, meth addicts, they probably have a tribe, but it's a short-lived tribe. <laughs> but you, you have less immediate destructive addictions, and then that's part of your tribe. It's like the people who go to the bar. Certain kind of people go to the bar all the time. They don't just go for the alcohol. They may like the alcohol, but they also go for the for the communal gregariousness of the other people who go to bars. They have something in common. I mean, if you you go shopping at Christmas time and you just stand there like Bruce Willis did in the movie Unbreakable when he stood in the train station and he could just sense what was going on with other people. What was going on in their minds? You know, in the movie anyway. Well, the fact is you do that. When you, you, you get in a crowd of, you know, or the wave, you know, you go to a sports event and everybody's worked up. Everybody gets excited at the same time. You're picking up energy there. You're becoming a part of that collective consciousness. And it's very clear. You see it just infecting everybody. Kind of a mass hysteria. Well, that happens every day on a much more subtle basis. And so you become a part of this tribe and the tribe creates a bubble of thinking around their conscience. They think a certain way inside this bubble and of thinking, this collective consciousness. Or in most cases, we could call it the collective unconscious because they're willing to see this, 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 and this, but they're not willing to see that. That's outside the bubble. Can't let that come inside the bubble. 
You know, you don't want to see that. So nobody is allowed to bring... So your bubble becomes your safe place. Your safe place of thinking. And you gather all kinds of other people that that don't mind seeing this, 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 and this, and this, but they don't want to see that over there. We're not going to let that in our safe space. And you come along and you want to say, you know, you guys have this problem because of this, this, this. Oh man, you're in trouble. They're going to drive you out of their safe place. Now everybody does that to some degree. Uh, you know, and that's why they go to certain churches because certain churches, you know, we just heard on the news about uh, some church having, I didn't quite figure out what the problem was, but, uh, uh, or the evidence of the problem, we should say. I know what the problem is. The fact is that their bishop is one of the first gay bishops or whatever, female gay bishop or something, and her partner. And uh, now they're having all kinds of problems and, and, you know, so where, where did that come from? <laughs> well, they 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 try to create, and so now they have to join another group because they're like bankrupt or something. Anyway, the the point is is that when you don't want to see the truth, the whole truth, and provide for it, then you have to create this bubble, and everybody who doesn't fit into your bubble is now in conflict with your bubble. They a lot of times they have their own bubbles. That's why you have you know conservative bubble and the the liberal bubble. And you can do all these things over in the liberal bubble. You know, I always remember somebody was talking about uh, you know gays being normal in the early days when gays were just going to be should be accepted. They weren't talking about gay marriage or anything like that, but they're just saying that you, we need to accept them. And uh, some people were protesting against that. And the gays were protesting against them. And Then there was this other group that came along and they wanted to have it accepted to have sexual relations with animals. Bestiality was to be accepted. And these people over here that were promoting the gay rights said, Oh no, get those people out of here. <laughs> They weren't going to let them in their bubble. They they had to get those out of here. Same we've seen the same kind of thing with pedophilia, but now those guys are all getting in the same bubble. It's all okay. <laughs> There's no rules. Nothing matters. We're you know the God is dead. You know the Nietzsche kind of approach to reality. And so anyway, the point is you you get all kinds of abuses when you create these bubbles because you. You have to keep some of the truth out of your bubble. And this creates conflict with people who will accept this truth. The problem is with the conservative liberal uh, bubbles is that the conservatives have all kinds of untruths in their bubble. And they're also terribly outnumbered. I mean, liberal college professors outnumber um, almost... Nine to one, ten to one, uh, conservative college professors. And, uh, and we'll see more about that when we get to the latter part of this little series on bursting that bubble. We're always told never attack somebody's delusion. I do it all the time. <laughs> but I'm such a nice guy, I get away with it. But, uh, 
you're not you what they do is they the wall gets thicker the bubble gets thicker they put up a wall more they have to shut you out and because they don't want so how do you penetrate that bubble how do you break down that wall and you know i've dealt with you know counseling people and sometimes it takes years to eventually break down that wall well the fact is everybody's bubble is going to burst eventually and I mean, when you face death, your bubble bursts, and you know what happens? You you find yourself in the hell that you have created by staying isolated in your bubble of thinking. Uh, I I actually saw a movie the other day on Netflix uh, that uh, was talking about uh, Julius Assange and. And some of the things that he he said, and I I noted that he has said several times, uh, courage is contagious. You know, fear is contagious too. <laughs> I just thought I'd add that little note. And he also believed that the 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 way to justice is education. Unfortunately, like I said, ninety percent of your professors are liberal. and they believe in social justice, and they believe in the Corbin of the Pharisees. <laughs> <laughs> which makes the word of God to none effect. And y- if you attack that in their bubble, you're in a lot of trouble. So education, we have to put that in quotes. What do you mean by education? Because education could be just indoctrination. <laughs> and that's what it is most of the time. I mean, you cannot send your kids to school without having them indoctrinated with a false dichotomy. But Julian also says you can't do anything sensible until you know what the situation is that you're in. Well, you can't do anything sensible until you know yourself. You know, if you go back to the 60s, and those houses made a ticky-tacky that I mentioned in the first show, um, there was a... The, the the big theme was to know yourself, you know. I mean, the beat generation, which became the hippie generation, supposedly, you know, there were all kinds of guys leaving on a motorcycle, heading off to do it their way and to figure themselves out and find themselves or whatever. And uh, uh, like Sabrina, who found herself in Paris, well, found a self in Paris. I don't know if she found herself, but anyway, the uh, you need to know the truth about yourself. And a lot of people don't want to know the truth about themselves. There's a lot of trauma in their life, a lot of heartache in their life. Um, and even if there isn't, whatever trauma is in their life, oh, that's a, to them, that's a lot. <laughs> it may not be as much as this guy's, but to them, it's overwhelming. And this is the way it's been since the garden. The people wanted to decide what was good and evil for themselves. We call it eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's them with their own brains going to figure out what's right and wrong. Rather than the intuition of the tree of life. The uh, revelation of God through the tree of life. Which is the alternative. Which is what Christ was all talking about. I remember, you know, like when God molded Adam and Eve from this primordial Adama. That's what they call the clay. It's the word Adama, which is kind of means man. He molded it from that, and he breathed into it. 
And Jesus comes out of the tomb and walks up to his apostles and he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Was that what the creation of Adam and Eve was? Somebody who was molded out of the race of man and God breathed into them the Spirit. And when they had that Spirit, they received dominion. And when they had dominion, then they could go about being either a shepherd or a plower of Adama, of men. And a shepherd does not force the sheep. He guides the sheep. But a, a plowman plows the Adama, makes it stand in rows, turns it over. And so, th- is that really what that story, that metaphoric story is all about? The same as we just looked at this metaphoric story in Luke 13.1, trying to tell us something. But anyway, the, we take this and we have to know ourselves. And Adam and Eve didn't want to know themselves. They wanted to hide from themselves. They wanted to hide from the truth. Are you still hiding in the bushes? Are you hiding in your bubble? And in order to construct that bubble, you need religion. You need doctrines. The doctrines have to really have nothing to do with anything important. But they need to sound important. And what's when I say they have nothing to do with anything important, the most important thing is to know your sinner, and to know what sin it is that you're doing, and repent of that sin and start thinking a different way. Thinking it's okay to live at the expense of your neighbor is not good. It isolates you. That fellow that I talked about, the quadriplegic, just to give you a little picture into his story, like I said, he he had to wheel around on this cart, and this guy gets mad, wants to take his property over. He offered him money, and he he didn't want to sell. He'd been very stubborn, which is his right. I mean, it was his property. So he ins- sicked inspectors on him. All kinds of different inspectors would come there and inspect the place. Well, he was eventually cited for having a cord on the floor that did not have one of those plastic covers that covers the cord. So somebody could trip on that cord. The problem is that was the cord to his bed that wheels around all over the shop. He, he, it's, it's constantly moving. I mean, there's not a hundred guys working in there. He usually has one or two guys working for him. And they fabricate stuff and they make stuff and he shows them how to do it and they sell it. And he can pay them wages and, and keep the shop open. And he's getting money because he is disabled, but he's not just sitting around watching videos all day like the other guy who really isn't disabled. And is absolutely destroyed by the social welfare that is coming from Social Security. But anyway, this guy keeps working. But he's cited and he fights this. And he looks at Patriot guys, you have this right and all this stuff. And he fights it in a way that we told him. He was already fighting it when we came across him. But uh, if he's fighting it in a way that says it really isn't the way to do this. Well, by the time we got there, he was already... Put into jail because he wouldn't pay the fine. And and so therefore he was in contempt of court for this little fine of not having a cover on his cord. <laughs> that follows his bed around the shop. He goes to jail because he's considered in contempt of court because he wouldn't pay the fine because he says it's ridiculous. And it was ridiculous. And the judge should have seen it was ridiculous. 
But, you know, in jail, a quadriplegic doesn't have extra care. They didn't put him in a hospital. They put him in with the regular prisoners. He can't even wipe himself when he defecates. Nobody was taking care of him. He got gangrene. Ended up having a third of the muscles in his buttocks removed in an operation eventually because he was dying in prison, in jail, for not having a cover on his court. Meanwhile, all the Christians were singing in their churches down there in that town. Because they don't attend to the weightier matters of law, judgment, mercy, and faith. This was what's going on. They had to go hundreds of miles to us to get him out of jail. And we'll tell you more about that when we come back to Keys of the Kingdom. So, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. And uh, the time is clipping away here quick on this. So, just briefly, that individual who was put into jail because the cord to his electric bed was uncovered as he wheeled to a shop that had provided employment for two or three different guys at, at a time. And uh, somebody wanted his property. And they set all these inspectors on him. And eventually he fought this in the wrong way. And ended up going to jail in contempt of court. Because he wouldn't pay the fine. And uh, got gangrene. Because nobody was taking care of him. He's quadriplegic. And uh, had a third of the muscles in his buttocks removed surgically because of the gangrene. And he was still in jail. And... uh, we found out about his plight through uh extended network. I got people together to write a deal and get the matter moved into federal court. We got it into federal court. First day, the judge looks at this situation and has him removed from the jail. <laughs> He's able to go home. And uh, But we still had this guy who wanted his property and was doing all these things, harassing him. And, you know, I, I remember that the when they wanted, the guys were not paying fines and not doing right and whatever that they owed the police. Instead of going after the guy, they they called the guy's mother. And the next thing you know, the guy's paying his debts uh, and uh, because they called his mother. Well, this guy's mother was dead. We continued to research him and found out he had a daughter who was living a pretty straight, normal life. And we got a hold of her and told her what was going on. And guess what? The guy backed off. (laughs) I don't know. I wasn't privy to the conversation between the daughter and the father. But the father backed off of attacking this guy. So now he was back home. He never did open up his shop. You know, he was terribly injured by the gangrene. And... uh, and he was very angry and everything. But we started dealing with his real problem. The same as, you know, how did we deal with the mafia guy? 
you know, we didn't send hitmen down. We told his daughter, and she dealt with him. So now, what about the quadriplegic? How do we deal with him? Well, we found out about his family. So when when people ask for help, I want to know, where's your family? And you'd be surprised how people just suddenly don't want help anymore. Because their problems are almost always related to their family. Because that's where their trauma comes from. And that's why they have such a bubble. And so, anyway, we we started getting him reunited with his family. And we're, we're working on that process and everything. But he was just very angry after this whole thing. And his health was in a bad state. But... You know, we did get him in contact and did get him conversing and did talk to the family a little bit and tried to get them so that they were a little bit more forgiving because they were both mad at each other because of abuses to each other. You know, we always hurt the ones we love and forgiveness is the end of conflict. But anyway, in this, in this whole quote, uh, that we were reading from in Luke to take you to the next level. He talks about the fig tree not bearing fruit. We've talked about that. Where the fig tree, you're not bearing fruit. You have these kinds of injustices going on right in your community. And you don't do anything about it. You go to church, you sing songs, but you're not attending to the weightier matters of law, judgment, mercy, and faith. Right in your own community. We... Everybody who was working on this project lived hundreds of miles from this guy. I probably, well, I wasn't the farthest one, but I was pretty far away. And with no resources. And uh, and yet, except for, you know, past skills, able to write up this uh, motion to have this thing moved into federal court and then had to come up with the fees to get it into federal court and, and we got him out of jail. It would have been so much easier if I could have just called up a local church and say, you know, there's an injustice going on in your community. They would say, oh, it's not my problem. (laughs) We're Christians, but we don't have anything to do with law, judgment, mercy, and faith. Even though that was the weightier matters according to Jesus, we don't worry about that because we're living in our little religious bubble that we're saved already because we believe in Jesus. We don't believe in what he said. We don't even know what he said, but we believe in him, <laughs> that he was the son of God. You know, he's born of a blessed virgin, but we're not interested in the weightier matters. Wow, just shocking. <laughs> but anyway, but we couldn't get the local churches, and we've done this many times over the years. So we decided that we're just going to try to conform to the church. That Jesus established. And you know. We have a study every Tuesday night. And it's been a struggle. Because we don't get any support. We give everything away for free. We get virtually. Tiny little bit of support. We can't even get people to form congregations. To work together as a team. I mean it's a struggle. After all these years. We got a handful of people. I mean, it was more than a handful of people, but it's really when you got 300 million Americans and and uh, billions of people in the world, and we're all over, and millions of people have probably come to one or more of our websites and read stuff. Then they just go back to you know doing their own thing. You know, I don't have time for that. I got to go bury my father. I got to go 
you got to do this. And, you know, it's Fourth of July weekend. I got to go out and have a couple of beers and a barbecue. That is not interested in seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness. They're interested in staying safe in their bubble. Everybody laughs about the safe spaces that people talk about on campus. The fact is, is a lot of those people laughing, they got their safe space already. And they're protected from the truth. They don't want to know what the Corbin of the Pharisees was. They don't want to know these things. So they're not bearing fruit. They're bearing, the, the fruit they've born is bondage. They, their children are born in bondage, in debt, surety for debt. They're merchandise. They're all back in the bondage of Egypt. They don't live by the perfect law of liberty. They live in a bubble of their own imagination. How do we burst that bubble? How do we get them out of that bubble? Well, the bubble's gonna burst anyway. For everybody. We're just trying to, you know, reach out a hand to get people to come out and start turning their thinking around and thinking a different way. In verse 10, he says, And he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman which had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bowed together and could in no wise lift up herself. And when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said unto her, Woman, thou art loosed from thine infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. And the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation because that Jesus had healed on the Sabbath day and said unto the people, There are six days in which men ought to work. In them therefore come and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. I mean, it's like, hello? This woman, 18 years, she's been coming to this stupid synagogue and you haven't healed her. Jesus sees her and wham, she's healed. I'll bet you anything that synagogue leader did not attend to the weightier matters of law, judgment, mercy, and faith. I believe Jesus had been doing that for years. So, you talk, well, I tell you whose indignation you don't want is God's indignation, which he, I'm sure he had with that guy. The Lord in, then answered and said, You hypocrite! <laughs> Doth not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or his ass from the stall and lead him away to watering? And ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham... Whom Satan has bound, lo, these eighteen years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day. (laughs) And when he had said these things, all his adversaries were ashamed, and all the people rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. Wow. What have you been doing lately? We're we're trying to release you from your bubble of false religion, 
of the fake gospel. That's what you've been believing in, is the fake gospel. Not the real Jesus, a fake Jesus. And we're trying to relieve you from that bubble by giving you some information that shows you need a brand new bubble. (laughs) You need the bubble of the Holy Spirit. You need to dwell in the Holy Spirit. You need to awaken out of your slumber. And you can't just do this in your mind. You have to change your actions. You have to gather together. Learn the art of forgiveness. And then God will begin to open your eyes. He goes on in verse 18. Then said he unto, what is the kingdom of God like? So now right away he's talking about the kingdom of God after this thing. And whereunto shall I resemble it? It is like a grain of mustard seed which a man took and cast into his garden. And it grew. And it waxed great tree. The fowls of the air lodged in its branches of it. All from this little tiny seed. That's what you have to start doing. If you think you've already got it, it ain't going to grow. You can't leave it in your pocket. you got to act upon what you're beginning to see, for those of you who are beginning to see it. This is why you have to become a part of a network of people that are making this commitment to what? Seek the kingdom of God. This other paradigm. This bubble of God in which everything is exposed to the truth. This is why as many as I love, I also rebuke. Because we, you, you'll bless the rebuker when he shows you, oh no, this idea you had, not true. This idea you had over here, false, incorrect. This idea over here, not nearly as important as this one over here. Look at the priorities of Christ. What did he talk about? So this, he says, and again, he said, Whereunto shall I liken the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal. Till the whole was leavened. And he went through the cities and the villages teaching the journey and journeying toward Jerusalem. This is what, this is why you gather together and began to see the truth about yourself. See the fact that you've been hiding from the truth or it's been hid from you. Be willing to see the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So that God will help you and bless you and enrich you. And you will become a part of the collective consciousness of Christ. And when you go into a room, you will not go in alone. When you go and face the enemy, you will not face the enemy alone. Then said one unto him, Lord... Are there few that be saved? And he said unto them, Strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be 
able. He says strive. Because many are not going to make it. They're not going to be able to come in. When once the master of the house is risen up and has shut to the door and he begins to stand without and to knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us and he shall answer and say unto you, I know not whence ye are. Then shall ye begin to say, We have eaten and drunk in thy presence. We went to this synod and this church and read the Bible. And thou hast taught uh, in our streets. But he shall say, I tell you, I know you not whence you are. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth when ye shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourself thrust out. What did Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and and Moses and all the prophets have in common? They were part of systems of free will offerings based in family taking care of one another. And they shall come from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south and shall sit down in the kingdom of God. And behold, there are last which shall be first and there are first which shall be last. You you have to start seeing the true gospel of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is not... You know, they, they talk about you going to sit in the kingdom. But the fact is, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's within your reach. You're supposed to be seeking it. You're supposed to be striving to seek it. And that kingdom of God in there, in that kingdom of God, you are anxious, willing, and wanting to tend to the weightier matters of law, judgment, mercy, and faith. And if you will do that in every aspect of your life, God will bring his blessings just like he brought the blessings to that woman. He didn't just pick that woman out at random. That woman had a repentant heart. If you got problems with authoritarianism and and impatience and unforgiveness, you're going to have problems. You're going to have all kinds of problems. And they're going to be a burden on you. And 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 you're going to want help with those problems. You know, the, the the quadriplegic had problems. But his problems were actually stemming from his real problems. And his real problems had to do with unforgiveness. He would have had a bubble of protection around him had he been wheeling around his his shop in forgiveness, walking in forgiveness. He wouldn't have had all these problems come upon him. And he would have seen solutions. He he would have not been so set upon. But he was angry and authoritarian and and bossy. And, 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 it was, and, and this bossiness is just evidence of his anger and unforgiveness and resentment. 
And that's what you need to deal with. You need to deal with those things, and the other things will take care of themselves. That's why seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness, everything will be taken care of. Because people always want help, financial help. And, uh, you know, like the, you know, I won't, I won't mention who, but, uh, you know, I've talked about a number of them on other shows where they, they need help. That where they, but I know where they really need help. Not always, but in this case, I know where he needs help. And I'm sure there are more places, but we couldn't even get to square one. You know, we have this bubble of religiosity around us where we think, oh, well, I, I know this and I know that and this is bad. And that. I have a guy out in the Midwest who's always writing to me about all these terrible things and, you know, the Illuminati and and all these bad guys going around making all these problems. There is a God. And if you eat of the tree of life, you will have a solution for all those things. Studying all those things and thinking you have this knowledge, you don't have the knowledge you need. The real knowledge you need is of yourself. What's going on in you? Another verse in this chapter, before we get to the end. (laughs) The same day there came certain Pharisees saying unto him, Get thee out and depart hence, for Herod will kill thee. Remember, he was on his way to Jerusalem. And he said unto him, Go ye and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out devils, and I do cures today and tomorrow. And the third day, I shall be perfected. We talked about in the last show, show and we, in, when we talk about the unchurch, about, and, and I had this conversation with uh, people in the ministry, uh, or people who have done a lot of ministry, where they, they talk about this, um, milk of the gospel. That's great. But you have to learn to eat meat. The the meat of the gospel. To to get your teeth into the gospel. To become perfected in that gospel. He says, Nevertheless, I must walk today and tomorrow and the day following. For it cannot be that a prophet perish out of Jerusalem. In other words, he's headed to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, which killeth the prophets, the stonest them that are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen doth gather her blood under her wings, her brood under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate and verily I say unto you ye shall not see me until the time come when ye shall say blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord Jesus was triumphant king of Jerusalem when he came in king of Judea king of Israel And he was showing us how that kingdom operates. And it has to operate by faith, hope, and charity. In order for you to do that, you have to gather together and learn to forgive one another. When someone needs help, you have to help them in a way that strengthens them. So you have to have eyes that see 
the root of their problem. In order for you to see that, you have to see the root of your problem. And dealing with unforgiveness is part of that. Dealing with selfishness is part of that. The idea that we're going to gather in a network and pay for every single thing that comes along, like the woman who bled every year for years and years and years, until all her money was gone to doctors. And all she had to do was touch the hem of his garment and she was healed. These are mirac- these miraculous healings come about because you actually start dealing with the root of your problem. The root of your problem is in you. It's not in the Illuminati. It's not in the Freemasons. It's not in the false religion. It's in you. You have to be still and know. So, how do we break that bubble? It's going to break. But what we're trying to do now is people have to open up their hearts and start receiving the truth. Be willing to see the truth about themselves. See their nakedness. See that their false religion is a false religion. Start turning around. Start allowing God to perfect their mind, change their mind by walking, striving, persevering in the ways of Christ. Until then, peace on your house. And may God be with you. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.